Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This Epiphany in Lent, we are back in the Gospel of Luke, where we see God revealed in Jesus. As is common for Luke, what we see is the kingdom coming to all, but maybe most often to the unexpected. We'll see Jesus challenge his disciples, the rich young ruler and the proud religious leader, but commend a persistent widow, insist that the children come to him, and reveal that a blind beggar can see him for who he is even better than his own disciples. Finally, we will make our way with Jesus, his disciples, and the crowd around him as he enters Jerusalem on Holy Week long ago. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy the sermon. God bless. Let's pray again. Lord, uh, speak to us. Uh, We want to hear from you. Lord, we've, we've heard these words so many times in the context of our worship, and maybe some of us have heard it elsewhere as we've read your scriptures, and, and we pray that these words, though, though may be common in our community here, might be fresh again this morning. So now may uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations and the thoughts and the contemplations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so I, I read um, a story this week about a, a very bright young man. He was driven. He was a pre-med student, and he was in a very competitive college. And during the summer between his sophomore and junior year, he spent largely that summer traveling around in Southeast Asia. And while he was there, he met a guru, and this is what the guru said to him. Don't you see you're poisoning your soul with this success-oriented way of life? Your idea of happiness is to stay up all night studying for an exam so that you can get a better grade than your best friend. Your idea of a good marriage is not to find a woman who will match your soul, but to win the girl everybody else wants. That's not how people are supposed to live. Come join us in an atmosphere where we all share and love one another. So he was kind of ripe for this invitation. Um, He was ready to, to receive this invitation to the ashram, to a place where constant competition is put to rest. Uh, The sustained sizing up of others is put to death. Um, So he called his parents up. Halfway between, you know, college, I said, Mom and Dad, I am moving into this ashram. Status, right? It seems as though um, the pull of status, sizing others up, competition is just like everywhere we look. Pride follows us all over the place. Where do you fall among others, right? Uh, What clothes do you wear? What schools do you attend? Did you attend? What neighborhood do you live in? What job do you have? What skin color do you have? How often does the coach put you into the game? Some places, maybe like the church, who'd you vote for? What preachers 
do you listen to? You know, sort of First Corinthians chapter 1. I follow Paul, I follow Reverend Rob, I follow Peter. Something like that. Um, what Enneagram number are you? You know there's Enneagram righteousness. Come on. Um, are you married or are you single? Status, right? And now I want you to think with us, with me, about the context that this passage is placed within. In just Luke chapter 18. Okay, who have we seen in Luke chapter 18? Oh, we saw a persistent widow, somebody who had no property, uh, no means to work, um, and she shows up every day, right? She shows up every day to beg of this judge to hear her case, so she doesn't have places to go to, people to see. She clearly didn't have money to pay the lobbyists to lobby the judge to actually hear her case, and then we have a judge, Somebody who literally makes judgments on other people's lives, who has control over a community and how the community's affairs work out. Somebody of incredibly low social status and incredibly high social status. Of course, then we had uh, the Pharisee. You'll remember the Presbyterian, the religious leader who tithes and shows up to Bible study and is faithful to his wife and welcomed at every single church. I'm someone who speaks for God, who counsels others. Other people actually go to him and say, hey, what's going on with the Bible here? And how should I live my life in light of it? The Pharisee, somebody who was looked up to regarding their faith and their life. And then we had a tax collector. Yuck. People that were in cahoots with the Romans. Somebody who uh, sought to benefit their own pocketbook from taking from their very neighbors. Again, those of sort of high social status, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The judge, always sizing up situations, always sizing up people. Um, from what we know, it seemed as though the judge was always sizing them up on, based on what they could give him, how much money he could maybe get out of the situation. Um, the Pharisee, what does he do? He looks around, right? And he goes, thank you, God, that I'm not like him. That the high seem to be looking down on others, sizing others up, status, this rat race that we've been talking about. And um, Jesus was pretty important in his day. Uh, crowds often followed him. We read that all the time. There were crowds that were following him, him here and there, and they were giving their ears to his words, attentive to what he might say to them. What we know is that sinners and tax collectors actually wanted to hang out with him. But also, so did folk like Nicodemus, a Pharisee. Um, and Zacchaeus, who we know is a really rich man. We do know that he was a tax collector. We're going to get to that. But just keep in mind that he was the well-to-do. We know, it's epiphany after all, that the wise men from the East made a long journey to see Jesus. Because he was important. Um... We know that Jesus, when he was a youth, the only story we know about Jesus being a youth is that he was in the temple itself, teaching all these other people about God, and they were listening. They wanted to hear what he might have to say to them. So Jesus is really, really important. And important people should be with Jesus, right? Just like important people should get the ear of the judge, and important people should probably hang out with Pharisees. So verse 15 goes like this. 
Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. So I I think what we need to do in this sermon together is just say, what is the whole status of children? What's going on with kids here? Now, first, I want to talk about what's the status of children in our life, in our time. And I want to suggest to you that in some ways, our, our, our view of children is an inflated view. Um, we would never rebuke somebody for bringing in a child to be touched by somebody like Jesus, right? I mean, for the most part, when we think of children, we think of words like this. Hopefulness. A future. Simplicity. Excitement. Maybe transparency. Kids will tell you the truth, right? Um, A receptivity, a trust, just beautiful. Uh, We often think today of children um, being the only ones maybe who are not so scarred by the world that cynicism doesn't just rule their lives. They still have a fresh beauty about them. Um, we We rather romanticize and idealize children. We'll do anything for our kids. We dote on them, do we not? Pamper them when we are able. We hold our children to unreal expectations. Their education is our highest priority. Their friendships, they're more important than our own. And their sports schedules rule our lives more than our commitment to worship. Our children call the shots. Um... So many, many today would say, of course, to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Did you not see how cute they were? Especially Micah this morning, right? With his new glasses. Um, I remember my pastor growing up telling a story when he was going to um, administer a baptism. He was sharing this story that he had a good friend in Tacoma where we worshipped who was a Baptist minister. and, And they were having a discussion about children. And this pastor believed that children weren't weren't accountable for their actions until they reached a certain age, which is known as the age of accountability. Maybe some of you are familiar with this idea. And that children, when they were young, were more or less good. And so they had this conversation, and they had this conversation right before this pastor and his wife and their one-year-old were going to take a trip from Washington State to Virginia to see family in a car. And he returned from that vacation, and he told my pastor, uh, Rob... He said, Rob, I didn't make it to Utah still believing in that idea. Um, But you get the idea of sort of an idealized, romanticized status of children that we have today. But you have to understand that that could not be farther from the case in this situation that we're reading in the time of Christ. Then, in some ways, you could even say they had a deflated view of children. Um, Don't think... The, the disciples were all like these grouchy guys, you know, all oh, kids, kids these days, just get rid of them. That's not what the disciples are doing. Um, I mean, they, they were going along with basically what everybody else would have said. Jesus is really important. Kids, there's no social status for a child. They haven't, they're not old enough yet. I mean, children were not, were not yet fully human was the idea. Among uh, most people in the ancient East. They weren't adults yet. And so they were not considered fully human yet. 
Um, David Garland in his book on the book of, uh, uh, in his book on Luke, he says this, none of these virtues that we associate with children today were associated with children in the first century culture. None. He said children were considered incomplete adults. As incomplete adults, children were basically nobodies. They had no rights, no rank, no privilege, no position, no status. So here's what you have to understand. that The disciples were probably actually very well-meaning, and they were living within the culture that they lived in. And they knew how tiring Jesus' ministry would be, how sometimes he would retreat to outside of the area to pray, to be with his heavenly father, to simply rest from the chaos of crowds all around him all the time, um, to have some time and some space. And so they were sort of protective of him. And they knew that since, you know, he he's only has so much energy that maybe that energy should be devoted to those who have something in life, who can give something in life. <clears throat> so we, we've kind of seen, you know, these extremes in a way, like the doting on children of our culture today and the deflating view of children in the ancient world. But this passage does actually talk to us about children's status before God, which I hope is the only status that matters to any of us, but we all struggle with that. So what is the status of children before God? Well, I want to break this, this third part down in sort of the two sections, okay? And namely, I want to say this, there's sort of like a general status of children before God, and then there's more of like a specific status, okay? So first, the general one. The general status of children before God is that they are part of his creation. That they are humans. And as such, they are made in the very image of God. That it wasn't until actually the creation of humankind in the garden that God could say, very good. That just like every single other human ever, children are made for glory and dignity and they have beauty and that just as creation alone, the Lord has a delight in them. Even if they are infants. Even if they are infants. With no status in the world where, they, where some people want to toss them off as nothing. Every single person in this world, according to Holy Scripture, has dignity. Every single person in this world was made in the image of God. So we ought to decry every action that goes against that truth. We ought to hear Jesus say, no, bring them to me. Because they are human. They ought to be brought to our Lord. We all ought to decry every form of brutality against any human, any kind. Right? Whether that brutality comes from black or white police, like it did this week, on someone like Tyree Nichols, who was a skateboarder, which I loved. Um, or whether that brutality comes from the unjust war, like the invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia, or whether that brutality comes by defending and justifying any kind of abortion. We ought to decry it all. Because the general status of any human, any human, infant, old, whatever, is that they are made in the image of God. And as such, they have great dignity. 
Um, I want you to think about this with me. Okay, Jesus has these crowds coming to him. I mean, I mentioned these various people that come to Jesus, tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and the rich and the poor, and everybody just seems drawn to Jesus. And I think that's because what we see when we look at Jesus is again and again and again, his affirming this general truth that every single person has dignity. Every single person. So think with me just of a couple of favorite stories. John chapter 4. He meets this woman at the well, right? And she's ostracized from the community. And we know that she's ostracized from the community because she's outside of the town um, by herself, which women shouldn't be outside the town by herself. She's outside the town by herself at the hottest part of the day at a well. Everybody else would go there at the coolest part of the day, in the morning or in the evening, but she's right there in the middle of the day drawing water because that's the time when she can be by herself and nobody else wants to be with her. And yet what we see is Jesus comes and he sits with her and he talks with her and he even challenges her. He calls her out on her sin. You know, I've ha you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now isn't even your husband. And yet somehow he's able to treat her with such dignity and with such grace because she's an image bearer of God. That this crazy thing happens that she goes back to the very people that she was ostracized by, which she actually probably did some of the ostracizing, right? Because she just kept in this pattern of going after dude, 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 dude. And she goes, hey, come meet this man that told me everything I ever did. Which if you were to hear that, you're like, do I want to meet somebody like, like that? I don't think I want to meet somebody like that. Except that Jesus treats every single person like he treated that woman. Everyone. Everyone is made with dignity and glory and Jesus treated everyone like that. Okay, think with me quickly about Luke chapter 8. Um, in that chapter, we see Jesus crosses the sea, you know, uh, from Galilee. He crosses over and he goes and he heals the demoniac who was living by himself. Because nobody else wanted to be around him because he's a demo demoniac. He probably had a, he had a mental disease of sorts that made him violent and crazy. And nobody wanted to be with him. And Jesus goes to him intentionally and heals him. And tells him to go share this good news. Or think next of uh, what he does next, which is he heals this woman who has an issue of blood for 12 years. Somebody who nobody else would have been hanging out around because her job, if she would have been, ha been having blood come out of her, would have been to yell as she walked to the town, unclean, unclean. And so nobody would get near her. And actually, all we know is that she sort of reached out and touched Jesus, the hem of his gown, his coat, because she thought there's no way that he's going to get close to me. And then he calls her out and says, no, come to me. I'm going to restore you, not just physically, but socially, because you are made in my image and you have dignity and you have glory. Think next of how Jesus heals Jairus's daughter. Uh, Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue and his 12 year old daughter was dying and Jesus heals her. The demoniac, the ostracized women, the ruler of the synagogue, Jesus just treats them all with dignity. They all have glory. This is who Jesus is. He affirms again and again the glory of every human. So what's the general status of a child before God? Well, it's that they are made in his image and therefore made for glory. And Jesus shows this over and over and over again. And that is partly why 
people from the time of Jesus on, from every social status, every class, every race, have seen Jesus and thought, this is beautiful. This is what we need. But secondly, what about the children here in this passage? What's more specifically happening right here? So in the ancient world, um, only 50% of children would live to the age of 10. That's broadly understood in the ancient world. Only 40% would live to the age of 16. Um, in the Roman world, more specifically, we know that um, 30% of children would die in their first year. 30%. And that only 49% of children would live past their fifth birthday in the Roman world. Childhood was more of a desperate situation than a cute situation. So you have these parents, these Jewish parents, um, and they're bringing their children to Jesus to touch them, which means to bless them. And they're saying, please touch my child and bless them. Because I don't know if they're going to live, because my own efforts are not nearly enough to save them and even to keep them alive. And their life is entirely dependent on God's grace. Not only as infants were they totally dependent on their parents, but the fact is that their, their parents likely could not keep them alive. Their, their parents knew that it would be the grace of God alone that would sustain their child. And these, saw, these parents saw in Jesus the reality of God's true blessing. So one thing you have to see is that children are dependent, right? And parents are dependent. And one thing you have to see in this passage is that these are covenant children. These are people of the covenant, Jewish people that are coming and saying, bless my child. They're, children's who, they're, they're children who belong to the people of God. And they're bringing their children to God. Now, at this point, I, I should say this. I thought really hard and long, actually, about just giving you an entire sermon on why the practice and belief of our church officially is that children of the covenant, children who are born to believing parents, ought to be baptized, receive the sacrament of baptism. But then I had two thoughts. One, it would take about an hour, and it'd be really interesting, and half of you would fall asleep, and the other half of you might go, like, this is cool. Then the other thought that I had is that's actually not the main point of this sermon. Um, though I do think it's actually incredibly important to see how the whole scripture works together in teaching something. There's an argument here in this passage that I had never heard before for this idea, actually, of infant baptism. And I do want to mention it to you because it's really tied to this passage. So verse 16, Jesus says this, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. He says, do not hinder them. And what, is all, what does hinder mean, as Mike told us? Prevent, get in the way, do anything to, to, so that Micah can't pass the peace of Christ to Levi, right? Um, many of you know that Luke wrote both the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And the word hinder here, is actually mentioned twice also in the book of Acts. It appears first in Acts chapter 8, 
when Philip, the deacon, shares the good news of Jesus with the Ethiopian eunuch. And they're going along on the road, and they come to some water on the side of the road. And the eunuch says, what is to prohibit me from being baptized? That's the first time. There's only one other time that that word, the word that's translated here, hindered, is mentioned in Acts by Luke, and it's in chapter 11. And it's when Peter is telling how the good news went to the Gentiles and how they were baptized and received the Spirit. And he says, Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Prohibit in chapter 8 is the word in chapter 18, hinder. Stand in the way in chapter 11 is the exact same word as prohibit in Luke chapter 18. The only two examples of this word that has to do with infants being brought to Jesus are in the context of baptism in the book of Acts. Here's the point. God says, let kids come to me and let them receive my grace. Let the kids come to me. Let the infants, the little ones come to me and let them receive my grace. Now, here's the thing. I actually don't think the whole point of this passage has to do just, just with how do we understand the status of kids. I don't think that's the main point at all, actually. Because if you look at all of Luke chapter 18, this part is just sandwiched between all of these other stories of status stuff, right? The persistent widow and the judge, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And next week we'll see another situation that's somewhat similar. Which is to say, part of what Luke is saying is, what's your status? How do you engage with the kingdom of God? Right? After all, what he says is, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So what's your status? Is it like a child? Utterly, completely dependent? Entirely in need of another? Saying, nothing in my hands I bring. I don't have anything. I just have to cling to the cross. My children may be beautiful and full of glory and dignity just as you are. But they're also helpless. Dependent. Entirely in need. And this is the only way you will ever enter the kingdom of God. Whether you are an infant or you're 50 or you're 41 or whatever. It's the only way ever to enter the kingdom of God. It's the way of admitting that you need washing. That you need cleansing. It's admitting that you're a sinner in need of a savior. It's admitting that you're helpless and you're looking to God alone for grace. And that's just not the world we live in. I mean, the world we live in either wants to in inflate people, right? Look up to people and say, man, they're amazing. Look at what all the Pharisee did. Or just look down on them as though they're worthless. Look at that tax collector. No value. Traitor. Or we do what, you know, we look at children and say, you have no status, no rights, nothing. Or you're everything and my whole life and my well-being depends on whether or not you get into whatever school. So um, the young man that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, he wrote his parents six months after he joined this ashram. And he, this is what he wrote to them. 
says, Dear Mom and Dad, I knew you weren't happy about my decision, but I want to tell you how it has changed me. For the first time in my life, I'm at peace. Here, there is no competing, no trying to get ahead of anyone. This way of life is so in harmony with my inner soul that in only six months, I've become the number two disciple in the entire community. (laughs) And I think I can be number one by June. (laughs) But it begs the question, how do we get off of this? How do we get away from either just this utterly inflated view of ourselves or actually thinking that we're nothing? Because actually, that's the pendulum we often swing in, right? Or we live in one of those. Or we engage with other people as though, you know, that kind of person has no dignity and no worth. And that kind of person has all of it. What do we do? What's the answer to this status searching? What's the answer to all the hate in the world? What's the answer to our communities that are at war with one another? Just suggest to you that it's this, it's God's view of you. Both made for beauty, glory, and dignity, made in his very image. And yet somebody who needs to be washed because you are a sinner. You are in need of grace and you are helpless. A man named T.B. Joshua says, true humility means total dependence on God for everything. And the Christian good news is that you are both so flawed and so in need and such a mess that God himself must take on flesh and die for you. There's no other way. No other answer to how screwed up you are. And yet the Christian message is this. He does it with joy. Right? For the joy that was set before him, he endures the cross. Jesus gladly does it for you. Because he loves you. Dependent, helpless, needy, and all. He loves you. Brothers and sisters, the good news ultimately undermines all of our status searching, all of our superiority. It lifts up the lowly, it brings down the haughty. It says, yeah, you're a mess. Yeah, you're a sinner, but come to me. Let me bless you. Let me wash you. Receive the kingdom of God as a child, and enter into it today. Let me pray for us. Lord, pray that each of us would know how much you love us. God, I pray that each of us might rest in the reality that Marie Kondo can't keep it all together and neither can we and we don't have to. That being in the place of need and dependence 
is entering into the reality of the kingdom of God. That we are sinners, but you are a greater Savior. God, speak this truth to us today. And may we all, uh, parents and friends, brothers and sisters alike, train our children in these ways. Would they know that they are loved, that they are delighted in, and that they're sinners. Sinners whom Jesus went gladly to the cross for. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. Would you so move in us, each one of us, that we move from people being uh, folk that size others up all the time, that dismiss whole categories of people, who look down on others, who look so high up to others, God, that we would move out of these proclivities of sinful pride, of deep, deep shame. And that you would lift up our heads because of the joy of God who comes among us and dies for us in love. And you would turn down our pride because you must do that because our sin was so great. Move, up, move in us in these ways. Please, God, please. Hear our prayers. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.